Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode 34. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $403 and LTB coins are trading at 0.000524 cents. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm your host, John Barrett, here with my trusty sidekick, Maxwell. Say hello, Maxwell. <laughs> I'm just your average Bitcoin enthusiast who loves to talk about Bitcoin and share what I learn with you, the listener. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I interview Max Hernandez, author of the novel Thieves' Emporium. Max takes us deep inside this intriguing novel to the Badlands, a place where government spying is the norm and where we are all given a choice to either give up our personal freedoms out of fear or to be brave and keep our freedoms. I divide this interview into two segments and dedicate this entire episode of Bitcoins and Gravy to this stunning work of fiction and fact by author Max Hernandez, one of America's most talented writers and thinkers. So I am thrilled to have on the show today the author of Thieves' Emporium, a novel about the new Badlands, Freedom's Last Chance, by author Max Hernandez. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's see, where do we begin with this book? I'll tell you, first of all, when I heard about the book, I was excited about it, and I went to Amazon, of course, and I started reading where you can look inside the book. And I started reading, and I was immediately hooked. Max, let's talk about your book, and let's talk about how this book in some way relates to Bitcoin. Of course, all of the listeners out there are expecting this book to be about Bitcoin, and it's really not about Bitcoin. It's about something probably a little bit deeper than Bitcoin, more important than Bitcoin, or let's say um, something that certainly we know for the future, Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin, digital currencies are going to play a part in. So how does this book relate to Bitcoin? Where do you want to start with telling our listeners about the book? And ready, go. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, the book really describes the developing conflict that I see between the state and its attempt to control us through surveillance and money, and a growing group of individuals who are, I guess, in a generic sense, one might call hackers, but in a broader sense, people who have decided to simply hide, to not be put under surveillance, to stop being sucked in by state-issued money to try and go their own way and live their own lives. The book is technically very uh, sophisticated. And unfortunately, if I were to put Bitcoin in specifically, Bitcoin is so incredibly complicated by itself that it would probably overwhelm a reader because there's enough other uh, issues in terms of anonymity on the web. Uh, it goes deeply into the technologies of anonymity on the web. And so what I did instead is I used a stand-in, which is gold, in essence, digital gold. Okay. So you can sort of, as you read the book, pretty much do a one-for-one -one swap of Bitcoins externally, not the complexity internally, but externally, the mm -hmm. Bitcoins, for the gold they're talking about and see how it fits in very nicely. When you are referring to this gold or this gold certificate, this uh, digital gold in the book, is there a specific name for it? No, no, there's not. Actually, the essence of the system that's talked about in the book is one in which gold is on deposit with a number of small individual entrepreneurs, for want of a better term. 
and I'm talking right now of people like gun dealers, uh, jewelers, all of the people that you can imagine that would have safes available. I see. And so what they do is they get a small amount of gold and get somebody else to certify that they really do have this gold on deposit. Mm -hmm. And then they open an account for you with that gold. I see. And there's an electronic warehouse receipt for that gold that circulates around. So there's no single large amount of gold anywhere. And more than that, there's no lending associated with the gold. The gold is yours because you have a warehouse receipt. Title of the gold never sits on the hands of the person that owns it. Interesting. And that's one of the distinctions that the book talks about between our present banking system and the horrors associated with our present banking system. In essence, trying to draw a concept of an honest banking system. Nice. Okay, so when people are reading this book, they can kind of replace, like you mentioned, that concept of gold, as you just described. In their minds, they can put Bitcoin in there. Exactly. Because functionally, from a top-level standpoint, it's the same. Okay, and you know, five, ten years from now, we don't know what we're going to be using. We may be using Bitcoin. People may be using gold. Uh, We may be using some digital currency or iCurrency, an Apple currency, God forbid. (laughs) Yeah, I think what is coming, and I'm not sure that it's going to be that far away, I think it's probably a lot closer, uh, is the king is going to die. You know, the king of money right now, what society has decided is money, is dollars. The book talks about how you define money, and we can talk about that in some sense. But basically, it's dollars. If it weren't for the fact that the people that issue dollars are debasing it so badly Mm -hmm. and playing so many games with it, Mm -hmm. there would really be no reason to use any other form of money. Right, and if it also weren't for the fact that they're so big and strong and they have so many war machines to tell you that if you stop using it, you're going to get crushed. (laughs) That that is true, but that's actually kind of limited. So what I think is going to happen is the dollar is shortly going going to die. And when that happens... Then the next question is, because society can't function without money. We're back in the barter age. That's not going to work at all. Right. What is the marketplace going to choose as the next money? And you've hit on one of them, which is Bitcoin mm-hmm. or another another form of cyber currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many reasons to argue that because of privacy, Bitcoin is not going to be acceptable and somebody else will come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the blockchain has problems with being scalable and something may come up instead. The second, of course, is gold or silver. The third, of course, undoubtedly will be whatever the the U.S. government reissues the right. new dollar. Right. And you're exactly right. They're going to use their guns and they're going to use uh, regulation and they're going to use every other physical means they can mm-hmm. to force the population to use their money yeah. so they can continue to play the control game. You know, I was in Kroger just yesterday and the woman uh, that was checking out, I said, well, you've got new machines here. She said, yeah. She said, we don't know what that one part is at the front. There's a part of the checkout machine where I slid my debit card and keyed in my passcode in the front of the machine that I think is going to be part of the NFC system that they're setting up with machines around the country. That's the near field communication, which uh-huh. I think according to an article I just read, Walmart has just rejected the near field communication technology, which basically is a set of communication standards that allow devices to communicate uh, with each other, your phone to communicate with that device there in the Kroger as you go through checkout. I think Walmart has rejected that. What they're going to use, I think, is called MCX, if I have that right, Merchant Customer Exchange, which is a different technology. But anyway, so it looks to me like we're going to pretty soon be using our phones to access funds, whether it's through Visa or MasterCard or our bank or whatever. But that's a separate subject, and I just wanted to throw that in there because there was a guy recently at our local Bitcoin meetup who was talking about these NFC, these near-field communication uh, seeds that people can get implanted by way of syringe under their skin, and then you can essentially have that as your means of 
paying, you won't even have to have your phone with you. You'll just have that implant under your skin. <laughs> this takes me back to college when me and this girl, and he snuck into this building one time. We weren't supposed to be there. We ran into this janitor, and this janitor reprimanded us for being there, and then he gave us information from the book of Revelation, and he told us, when they come to give you that mark, don't take that mark. <laughs> it scared us, you know, the mark of the beast. Inject the seed into their body somewhere, and then you can track them, and you can track what they owe and what their debit account says and what their credit account says. Okay, but listen, I've gone way, way, way in a different direction, so I'm going to drag myself back to your book, Thieves Emporium. Uh, I'm here still. <laughs> Sorry, folks, for talking your ear off. I am still here with Max Hernandez, the author of Thieves Emporium. So, Max, take us into this book, if you would, and the lead character is a young girl named Fawn. She has twin children, twin daughters. Yes, twin daughters. Two twin daughters. And she is, as the book begins, correct me if I'm wrong, she's a prostitute. Yes. That is, is that correct. right? That is so, correct. So tell us about Fawn, or tell us where you want to begin introducing this book to our audience. Fawn is a, uh, I mean, she's a character, but mm -hmm. she's also a mechanism okay. for exploring the implications of the breakdown that I see is coming in our society the breakdown that's going to be caused by the surveillance situation and by the money situation. The situation that I foresee, and the book really talks in, in some detail about how this developed, she's kind of the method by which we walk through the development, is one in which the average person in society is going to have to choose whether they uh, remain controlled by the state mm -hmm. because of the surveillance uh, aspects that the state is developing, or whether they try to avoid this and go underground and inevitably become uh, an illegal and join what is also a growing segment of society, which is the entire open bazaar, dark market, uh, sort of Tor browser interfaces. Just like Bitcoin with money, all of those areas of anonymity, they have weaknesses. Mm -hmm. uh, but I believe those weaknesses are going to grow and are going to become solved. And the book kind of talks a little bit about that evolution into a organized, anonymous society where anybody in the society can buy or sell anything they want, say anything they want, um, communicate or even get documents, papers, without anybody anywhere knowing who they are. Truly anonymous. And she's the mechanism that leads the reader through this society as she undergoes her trials and tribulations inherent in the plot. Man, I cannot wait to read this. I'm so excited. Now, I read somewhere that you talked about frontiers and you talked a little bit about history. I don't know where I read this, uh, maybe something on Amazon and preface to the book, but you talked about going back thousands of years if somebody or a group of people that were part of a tribe or part of a community decided to leave, they could. They could just get up, they could go, they could travel to wherever, and they could get away from whatever was bothering them, whether it was climate or lack of food or drought or conflict within the tribe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That's probably just the introduction that you're thinking of. And uh, it kind of tries to set the framework for the situation that we are in now. Most people really don't have any idea of what a frontier means in our society. Because the frontier in the world, practically speaking, closed about 1900, hmm. the last frontier. Hmm. Uh, but until then, there was always a border, a boundary, beyond which the government and the authorities and the, the structure of society no longer extended. And so there were always people who, at the extremes, didn't fit in well with their society. And society really didn't want them around anyway. 
And so everybody just kind of agreed that they would please get up and leave. You know, they were escorted to the border and told to just go to the wilderness and leave. This is a, a phenomenon that probably occurred in Africa two million years ago with the first human beings. Uh, it probably resulted in humanity spreading north and uh, through Europe. And it continued right up until the frontier probably closed in North and South America hmm. around 1900. And so there was always a place where the misfits, the positive misfits, the real smart, creative, aggressive guys, and the sort of people that you really don't want to see any place or much less a dark alley would go. Mm -hmm. And because that has closed, we've dealt with those people now in our society and, and not always dealt with them very well. They've caused a lot of stress. So the point of this book is that what I'm talking about when I talk about the new Badlands is I'm talking about this hidden area in the Internet where these people can now go and do whatever they want and no longer be caught or patrolled. They're in essence in a new Badlands. They have crossed an electronic border and they're now free. I think for a lot of people listening, they might think, wow, um, I want to go to that Badlands right now. You know, I want to get a jump on the game and go there right now. And then a lot of people are thinking, man, but I don't have the technology. I don't even know, you know, how to get on the Tor network, right? Which is, you know, the dark net, how to you know, get in there. I believe the dark net was initially developed by the U.S. Navy, if I'm not mistaken, as a way to be on the internet and to be completely anonymous and to be completely safe from any prying eyes. Now, there are many people that are using the dark net right now but for your average person when you bring that up do you know what the dark net is do you know what tor is they have no idea what you're talking about right let alone if they thought okay i want to move myself and my communications let's just say they wanted to move their emails to a place where they knew there were no prying nsais for instance mm -hmm. they wouldn't even know how to do it the technology is beyond what most people are capable of i like to imagine that what you're talking about um, and I think you mentioned it a few minutes ago, I like to imagine that's going to get easier. It's going to get to the point where it really is just a, a simple choice. You go to the Badlands or you don't. Well, I don't know the, the way I talk about it in the book. It's not a simple choice in a moral or economic sense. Okay. But in terms of a technical sense, yes, it becomes rather simple. And I talk about this in some detail because it's just like specialization that occurs right now in our society. Mm -hmm. Right? We've got cars that are now incredibly complex. When I was a young man, you used to be able to fix your own car. Right. Now that's impossible. And yet everybody still uses cars because society has organized themselves to encapsulate that complexity in the hands of a few people that really know how to deal with it and arrange for nobody else to have to really worry about it. Mm -hmm. And the same is going to occur in any organized society, whether they're an organized society of criminals or whether they're an organized society of serfs following government dictate. It really doesn't matter. What's going to happen is, is this underground, uh, what I call the Badlands, becomes more organized. It's going to become more specialized. And uh, the woman in particular, I chose her because she has no technical skills whatsoever when she first, she doesn't even know what an IP address is. Hmm. She doesn't even understand that an IP address is, you know, what it means. And she goes through a learning process, having to learn some of it, but not having to learn a whole lot because she relies on organizations in the Badlands to provide her with that technology encapsulated in a form that she can easily use. Well, that's exciting stuff. Yeah. I think for people listening right now who don't have a tech background, I think <laughs> they're going to run out and buy the I mean, I can't wait to start reading the book. And I'm serious because that whole idea of having a character start from being a non-tech 
person and then throughout the book learn more about technology, how to do this and how to do that. That's just really, really exciting. And I love literature anyway, so I like things like that. So is it possible, and I'll let you get back to the book, but is it possible in this future that you envision for, which may be coming soon, um, for may pe- already be here. May already be here. Okay. I mean, and they're not going to advertise it if this thing is here, right? The government's not going to advertise it's here. That's right. And neither are the people that are forming the underground society. That's right. And, you know, I actually should say that, you know, we know that there are people who are actively forming the underground society with dark wallets and whatnot, right? And that have been doing that for a while. Uh, some of them, of course, there will always be a small percentage of people who are doing this for nefarious purposes, bad actors, as we call them. But we know that the majority of people who are doing this, they're doing this in response to what they see um, yeah. as existing and what they see is coming. All right. And what is coming is certainly a lot worse than what exists right now. The funny thing is that so many people are so, as I always say, they're so um, busy being entertained that they don't see what's coming. They don't see what exists right now. They don't see that we're being stripped of some of our rights. They don't Mm -hmm. see that the Mm -hmm. prison system is becoming privatized and that it could get to the point where in the future laws are dictated by private corporations that run the prisons and that laws are set up so that more people are moved toward the prison, providing more profit for the private entities who own those prisons. Oh, wait a minute. We already live in that situation. Sorry. It's already here. Oh, sorry, folks. Hey, so let me ask you, this novel is set when in time? That's a good question. Okay. Ah, I like that. Uh, It's difficult for me to classify the novel. Okay. Sitting there into cyberpunk, because that's the only classification I could find. Okay. But it's really political and economic fiction. It talks about the ideas associated with anonymity and and these politics. And none of those ideas are really directly tied to time. Uh, Hmm. Now you can say, well, the the sophistication of the computer techniques is such that they don't exist at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the answer is maybe you're right, but maybe you're not. Because if they did exist at the moment, if a society of the kind that we're describing in the book did in fact exist, and there's no technical reason why it couldn't have developed, it wouldn't be telling everybody about it. Right. You know, you wouldn't know. Right. The government certainly wouldn't want to broadcast to you that there is really a serious underground uh, movement going on. Right. And in fact, in many ways, you see it in the underground economy that we all don't know exists. Mm-hmm. This is simply uh, often a, a digital extension mm-hmm. of the underground economy that is not monitorable by the government. That's all the book is purporting to say may exist even now. You know, there's so many things that we never hear about that obviously the media never talks about. And one of those is barter. And one of those is, you know, all of the guys out there that do whatever. They they cut lawns, they trim trees, they, you know, people that clean houses, whatnot. And it's all part of the underground economy, which in the United States is huge. In other countries, it's over 50% of the entire economy. You know, and that's something that we never really hear about. It seems that our media likes to perpetuate the idea that everybody can afford to work and pay taxes and be a good citizen. When in fact, there are some people who, you know, I guess you could say that they're in the badlands already in terms of how they work. They work under the table. They work under the table. They work cash. There's always been that underlying group and they haven't necessarily been evil people. I Mm -hmm. mean, they're not out there knifing people uh, in alleys to gain money for uh, professional murder. Right, they're working. They're working. They're doing doing legitimate jobs that society needs and is willing to pay for. Right. Uh, They're just not telling anybody about it and they're hiding it. Right. 
Unfortunately, one of the characteristics of the digital state that is developing is that it's going to be harder and harder for people to do that. But if they move all their finances and all their money and all their communications into an area where the government can't deal with them, mm-hmm. now it becomes possible if I want somebody to do my lawn illegally, mm-hmm. all right, I just go online. I go to the dark market. I call it Thieves Emporium. That's where the book gets its name. Okay. I go to the Thieves Emporium. I find an ad for somebody that does lawn services. I pay him in the book. It You happen to pay him in gold, but yeah. you could just as easily imagine that you pay him in bitcoins. Yeah. And he finds out where you are. You tell him you know, where you want the job done. You check his reputation. It says he's got a good reputation. Mm-hmm. You make a deal. He comes. He does your lawn. He leaves. And if anybody from the government happens to observe any of this, all they could claim is that he came and did your lawn for free. And that's not illegal yet. Right, right. All right. You know, everything you just described for some people sounds so, some people would think that sounds so creepy that you would do this illegal thing of finding this guy to cut your lawn and you'd have to go to this place to find him and, you know, the seedy, dark underground of the internet. And it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Basically, what you're talking about is when I make a phone call to my friend, Dave, who lives on the other side of town, I say, hey, Dave, do you have the name of that guy, Jimmy, who used to cut your lawn? He goes, yeah, here's Jimmy's number. I call up Jimmy. I say, yeah, is Jimmy there? His mom answers the phone. Hang on just a second. Hey, this is Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy, can you cut my lawn uh, on Saturday? Sure, Mr. Barrett, I'll be right over. So Jimmy comes over. He cuts my lawn. I give him a 20 spot and a pat on the head. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. No problem. Anytime, Mr. Barrett, just let me know. Uh, wait, 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 Jimmy, wait a minute. Let me get a 1099 or a W-2 or a, what do I have to, what, right. do, what do we have to fill out here, Jimmy? Uh, hang on, don't go. I call Jimmy's mom when Jimmy gets home. Mrs. Brown, um, I just wanted to let you know that Jimmy cut my lawn, and I definitely want to make sure that he files that this year when he does his taxes. Like, oh, well, sure, absolutely, Mr. Barrett. Well, Jimmy's never done, Jimmy's never done that before. Are you telling me Jimmy's been cutting lawns for two years, and he's never paid his taxes? I'm calling the IRS immediately. Anyway, you know, that kind of stuff just pisses me off when people get so uptight about, you know, you have to pay your taxes for everything. I mean, let's cut to the chase here, folks. Every single one of you people out there listening to me breaks the law on a regular basis. You roll through stop signs. That includes you cops out there. Put the donut down and listen. (laughs) You know, you run through stop signs. You drive too fast in a residential neighborhood. When you hit the freeway and you're going on vacation, you're going to drive 5 to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. When Jimmy cuts your lawn or the person cleans your house, you're paying them cash, right? You're all involved in the underground economy. Let's get real. Let's stop bullshitting each other. Okay, let me step down off my soapbox. (laughs) Okay, Max, back to you. (laughs) All right, all right. Um, Yes, and my point is that all of those transactions that you have just talked about Mm -hmm. are going to get harder and harder and harder in the government-dictated arenas, the above-board legal arenas. They're going to get harder to do because of surveillance because of financial controls that are going to get stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, mm-hmm. uh, because of the tremendous databases that are being developed. They're going to be able to come to you and say, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? Where'd this money come from? Uh, so you're going to force people to either not do that anymore, mm-hmm. which is to say, go to the state and ask for welfare if they've lost their jobs or whatever, if the economy goes down, mm-hmm. or go underground in this digital environment that I'm talking about and conduct all of their communications and all of their electronic activities and all of their payments in a completely hidden fashion. Physically, they're still going to cut your lawn, 
but you aren't even going to know who the guy is who shows up and you're not going to know when he shows up and you're going to pay him through the internet and that's all you're going to know you're never even going to be able to contact him in the real world you're just going to know that he has a good reputation you are going to know he's good reputation right. that's yes. what's going to lead us forward with that's this right. in this peer-to-peer as opposed to centralized economy that I believe is coming. And, you know, one good example of that, of course, is Airbnb and VRBO. People lease out part of their Mm -hmm. house or their properties. And basically, they have people coming and staying with them, sometimes in their house, who they don't know. But how do they know this person is trustworthy? How do they know they can? this person's not going to knife them in their sleep or rob from them? It's because they can look and they can see the person's rating. They can see that other people said, this person was a very nice guest. They left the place very clean. They were very uh, courteous. Their communication was excellent. They arrived on time and they left in a timely fashion. So that is what we're talking about that shouldn't be in this whole discussion that we're having, shouldn't be left behind, should always be at the forefront of our thinking is we can trust what other people say. We can trust when other people say this guy does a really good job cutting your lawn or this person, you can trust them because I ordered their cab service you know, with Lyft or with Uber. I had them drive me to the baseball game or to the grocery store and they did a great job. Their car was clean. We can trust that what other people are saying about these people is true yes i think that's important the book talks quite a bit about reputations and uh tallying reputations and checking people's reputations it's one of the major aspects of the discussions that she goes through as she learns how to survive in the badlands i wonder how in addition to government surveillance in addition to finding out everything that you're doing or someone's doing I wonder if it would be possible in the future that is now, let's say, for a reputation to be sullied by some outside sources. You know, let's say I've got a great reputation here on the dark net or where have you, that I'm the best lawn cutter in town, best price, very fair, very friendly when I show up, clean up real well. Um, You know, and I've got this great reputation. I have a hundred people that say, John is the best lawn cutter. You're going to love him. Is it possible, you know, for someone to come in there in a sneaky way and for this to become the new cyber crime to sully somebody's good reputation? That's a frightening thought to me. It, It is. And it's certainly possible. But what you have to understand is reputation is not a single statement. It's a network. Okay. All right. So if I get a recommendation from you in terms of reputation, that recommendation is not the same as every other recommendation. That recommendation has my name tied to it and my reputation tied to it. Oh, good point. All right. And if I have a good reputation, then that reputation that I've just given you recommendation is is, is worth a lot more. Nice. Uh, the same issue also ties in terms of quantity. You're always going to have a occasional dispute, you know, a professional dispute in which uh, both parties feel they're right, both parties get angry, both parties say bad things about each other. Mm-hmm. The important point is that if you have enough of these reputation comments, if it's going all the time with everybody you deal with, mm-hmm. you're going to build up such a large quantity that statistically it's going to be very small. I see. And the network you referred to. And I'm referring to the network situation as well, yeah. I mean, I you can have, what I'm saying is you can have two people with very good reputations who develop a, a misunderstanding and get angry at each other and give each other both black marks. But the, the point is that uh, if you've been in this environment for a long time, you've built up so many reputation comments that people are going to look at the one and say, eh, it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, and the other point is that you know reputation means a lot. And so you're probably just not going to give any mark at all. Right. It's funny, I had a, uh, early when I put the book out, uh, I got some reviews. 
mm-hmm. and I got one review. You can still see it. It's there in Smashwords. Uh, Elizabeth Gray was the lady that gave me the review. And she took uh, two or three lines to say, good book, great plot, uh, a lot of interesting things. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. But there's a few technical errors. Hmm. And then she proceeded to fill, you know, a page and a half or two pages worth of an explanation uh, that pretty much supported Keynesianism. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, That pretty much told me that, you know, all the reasons why uh, my concepts that I talked about in in money would not work in the economy. Uh But she did not give me a rating at all. Oh, wow. And that's because she recognized that ratings were important. Mm-hmm. And this was a disagreement at a philosophical level. There are really three kinds of people, I guess, that uh-huh. read this book and give me reviews. The first one uh, are people that are looking at our present society, the economy and the politics specifically, and the technology and the issues of surveillance, and are worried. Mm-hmm. They don't know what's exactly what the solution is, but they do know that things are not going well mm-hmm. and that something is probably broken. Right. And they're looking for thoughts and ideas on what is broken and what possible solutions may exist. Mm-hmm. Those are the people this book is written for. And by and large, they all rate this book very well. Uh, then there is a second class of people who are looking for literature. Mm-hmm. All right, And they pick this book up expecting to see extensive character development. Mm-hmm. All right, Those are the people that really would be better off reading Dr. Zhivago or Jane Eyre. <laughs> I'm sorry, this book is not for you. Right. Uh, generally speaking, they don't say many bad things. They just say, well, you know, it's not really for me. I don't know. And I try to discourage those people up front as much as I can from, from getting this book. Right. Because they're really interested in entertainment right. and not in examining serious ideas. And then the third group of people are people who are uh, emotionally and intellectually committed to hierarchies as solutions to our problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who feel that the only way to solve our problem is to fix our government so that they can solve our problem. Right. All right. And this commitment is not rational. Mm-hmm. It is very deep-seated. I'm not exactly sure what it comes from. But if you challenge that commitment in any way, they react very negatively by saying uh, as many bad things as they can about <laughs> everything they can possibly think of <laughs> without ever saying to you, I'm sorry. Uh, I simply fundamentally think your premise is, is wrong right? because they don't want to acknowledge it, that the hard decision on their part, a priority, is mm-hmm. what makes them dislike the book. And they will rate the book quite badly. Mm. Uh, I had one, uh, he used his real name, so I looked him up. He was a lawyer from Topeka, Kansas, who worked for the government. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, a page and a half, gave it a, a two rating, a page and a half of all these bad things, none of which were even remotely relevant to the serious flaws that do exist in the book. So there are three kinds of people that see it. And if you're listening to me and you really feel the solution to our problems is a one-world government, mm-hmm. don't read this book. All right? <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if you really want to see uh, characters interacting with each other in deep psychological ways, please read Dr. Zhivago. All right? <laughs> right. Don't pick up this book. This book is for people who are concerned about the way the politics and the economics and the technologies of our society are going mm-hmm. and are looking for discussions Mm-hmm. about possible solutions and an analysis about the problems involved. You know, I think a lot of people are always going to defer to hierarchical structures when making their decisions or when trying to figure out mm-hmm. what's wrong with the world or trying to solve the problems of the world. 
Um, I know that studies have been done. <laughs> and being a man who is only five feet, eight inches tall, I know, ladies, you're disappointed to hear that. You thought I was at least six feet tall. Um, from what I've read and from what I've seen, um, there is this myth that there's this small man syndrome, the Napoleon syndrome. And it may exist. I don't have any issue with that at all. But I know for a fact what I've seen exists is the tall man syndrome. And that is that you grow up tall as a man in this society, for instance, and people do actually literally look up to you. Tall men and tall women do better in business. You have a gathering of people. They will go if there's a problem. They will gravitate toward the taller person. The guy may be a complete idiot, but they're going to gravitate toward him. They're going to look up at him and they're going to say, help us. We need your help because you're tall. <laughs> anyway, so that whole hierarchical um, mindset that, you know, we need to have somebody there to help us. Mom, dad, help me. You know, that we have to have some big force that's there that is more powerful than ourselves, even more powerful than all of our community, all of our neighborhood, something, our, our, our senator, our congressman, even our council person. We need somebody. We're constantly referring to these people as the saviors that are going to solve all of our problems. Well, you know, I think what you're talking about and what people like Andreas Antonopoulos are talking about is that those hierarchical structures, they have proven to be not the most effective as well as they have proven to be some of the most destructive forces in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. If you look at what these hierarchical structures have done. So many people, I hear this argument, this NSA argument that's going on, and it gets watered down into where it could be on the Oprah Winfrey show or, you know, Geraldo's talking about it or one of these other intellectuals, <laughs> you know, and people will say, I'll hear people say, well, you know, the NSA, they're there for a reason. They're there to protect us from terrorists. And if you know, if I'm not doing anything bad, you know, why should I worry that they're reading my emails? Or why should I worry that they're reading my mail, opening my mail, or what have you? And you know, why should I worry that they're breaking into my house? They say, you know, I don't really see any point in worrying about it because they have our best interests in mind. Again, the, the hierarchical thinking, there is that person, there's that entity that's going to save me. And I say to them, I say, are you kidding me? It's like if I'm walking down the street and somebody, a stranger, says to me, hey, John, can I have your social security number, your date of birth, and can you give me a copy of the last 25 or 50 emails that you sent to family or friends? I'm going to say, no, hell no. I don't know you. Why would I want you to even have my, even know my name, right? When I'm walking down the street, I don't necessarily want strangers to know my name or know where I live or know my phone number or any of that, right? So why would I want anybody to have any of my information if I did not give it to them or if they're not my friend? You know, I hear it all the time, Max. People say, you know, I've got nothing to hide. So, you know, why should I care if, you know, they have this surveillance or that surveillance? Let me, let me read your quote out of the book, okay? Oh, okay. Not from the to, book, directly not, from the book? Yeah, directly from the book. Not nice. To, not to bore you too much. No, but, no, no. Okay, here, here you go. This is on page uh, 263, by the way, if anybody wants to read it. There's a, a very wealthy power broker, so to speak, talking with one of the heads of the NSA type Homeland Security person at high level. So okay. this is a discussion taking place at that point. Okay. And the two of them are talking. And the Homeland Security guy says, with that amount of data, I got prosecutors who can always find a crime somewhere. We'll find enough to prosecute, kill him with lawyers, make his life miserable, maybe even set him up for some felony. All I need is a name. Even if he didn't do anything, that's the other guy that asks, 
Uh, of course he did something. There are 100,000 laws on the books, twice that in regs. Somewhere, sometime, somehow, by accident or intentionally, he broke one. All we have to do is drill back through all his data and find it. Wow. Your first step, if you want to maintain your freedom, and this is a right now absolutely for real. By the way, the book has a lot of a rather large uh, bibliography in there and talks about the situation right now in the real world. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the first things you need to start doing is to start decreasing your footprint online because every bit of information that you have that appears online gets hoovered up by the NSA and it gets dumped into those servers out there in Utah. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't do anything with it. And don't sit there and say, I'm not important enough for them to record my data. Mm-hmm. It's just the reverse. You're not important enough for them to not record your data because mm. they're recording it all. And they have uh, the data storage capabilities today. Are, exactly. Well, they, can it's all your, they can put your entire life on the head of a pin, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so tomorrow, if they decide they don't like you for some reason, or they want you to do something for them like spy on your friends and you're not really interested in it. Mm-hmm. All they got to do is then spend the money to data mine down through all of that stuff and find out everything they can about you. And I guarantee with the number of laws that exist in the world today, they will find something. It'll be Ruby Ridge for you all over again. Man, that's heavy stuff. But, you know, still someone's going to say, hey, I love my Facebook um, I love my LinkedIn. I love, you know, everything that I put out there on Match.com or, you know, whatever it is. Someone's going to say, but I like communicating with people. I like being open with everything that I do in my life. And it's so much trouble, right? It's so much trouble to set up a VPN. It's so much trouble now to go the what's a VPN? Oh, virtual private network. It's when you set up oh, right. okay. a link that... As far as the world is concerned, you're actually talking of a server in Sweden or Switzerland or Austria. Or, okay. You know. It gives you a, a different IP address. It gives you a different IP address. I see. Uh, How does somebody set something like that up? Is that easy to set up? Yeah, it's very easy to set up, uh, but it takes a little money. There's several links in the book on how to do that sort of thing. And you basically go to a supplier and you pay him. 50 bucks a year. Okay. He gives you the passwords and all, and then you install it on your computer. Okay. And whenever you want to go online, you go online through this VPN. I see. And then as far as anybody recording data on the internet is concerned, you're in Holland. Right now, of course, the thing that some people are wondering right now, I'm wondering, I know I'm not the only one, is how do you know that that company that offers you that VPN, that offers you that um, unique Swedish, let's say, IP address, how do you know that they're not data collecting for the NSA? You don't. Mm, This is a play the numbers game. Right. All right. Uh, You do the best you can to find one that doesn't do it. Right. If you're really worried about it beyond that, you install Tor and you use Tor over the VPN. Okay. So that even if they can say, look, uh, we're recording everything he does, everything he does goes over Tor through them. Mm -hmm. So they can't decrypt it and find out what's going on. I see. Now, Tor, can you talk for a minute about Tor to explain how it works uh, or how someone would access Tor? Is that easy? Uh, it, it is. It's, it's quite easy. There's a couple of different ways to do it. There is a, what's called a Tails USB drive that you can actually put in your computer. Okay. Your computer boots up on it. Okay. And it doesn't use your hard disk at all. It's completely isolated software that's running only on that USB disk. And that's called Tails? Tails. And that's the most useful form of Tor. How do you spell Tails? The most secure form of Tor. T- T-A-I-L-S. T-A-I-L-S. Okay. Uh, and then there's just download the Tor browser. 
Okay. You can download and install the Tor browser. It's quite easy to do. How does somebody find the Tor browser? Uh, uh, this this subject, there's so much to be done on it. Here it is. Uh, www.torproject, T-O-R-P-R-O-J-E-C-T, dot org. I see. Um, so they can go there and they can download. And they can download this, yes. And then they can get on the Tor. And, and when you're on the Tor, yeah. you are essentially on the dark net. Is that uh, right? Yeah, I hesitate to. The problem is there's a definitional issue here. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say dark net. They define it as as anything that you can't find through a Google search. Okay. All right. If you define that as as the dark net, then in fact ninety percent of what's going on in the internet is dark net. Okay. I mean, if you think about it, if you go to an ATM, mm -hmm. right, and you stick in your credit card, how does the ATM know your credit card is really good? Mm -hmm. Well, it goes and it checks a database that the bank has. Right. And it does that through an internet connection. Right. You can't gain access to the internet connection through Google. Right. All right. And yet that is part of the internet. Right. There is a, a very large section of the world that goes on that's not hidden. It's not illegal. Uh, there is nothing unsavory about it. But it's simply not web pages, and therefore it's not on Google. It's well encrypted, and it's right. not The bank it. decodes it and, right. and reads it. And that's what's by many people called the dark net. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard some people say, uh, well, there's the deep net, hmm. which is things like Tor, okay. in which you have uh, activities that are people are gauging in, in which they're trying to hide uh, what they're doing, mm -hmm. but they're not doing anything that's terribly illegal because mm -hmm. all these organizations are operating above ground. Right. If you run a Tor server, that's on a legal server. It is legal, you mean? It's legal. It's perfectly legal. legal to do that. Okay. All right. And so engaging in any kind of illegal activity over a Tor network is a risky thing to do mm -hmm. because there is always a chance. And if you go to the Tor project, they will give you a long list of possible ways that Tor can be compromised, that it can be compromised. The Silk Road, as an example, was a Tor hidden service. Right. Uh, it may have been compromised by the NSA. Right. But as soon as that happened, immediately three new Tor services equivalent to the Silk Road popped up. Right. And now there's hundreds of them. Wow. And they're all using better systems than the original Silk Road did. And are you saying that they're like the Silk Road where people can go and they can buy illegal yeah, most drugs? Of these or are. Most, most of them are. Uh, but you're risking things because you're dealing, in most instances, with uh, communications that are legal. And even though you're doing things that are hidden on them, somebody, if they try hard enough, could get that information. So the news is that if you're on tour it is still possible for somebody oh, to find absolutely. out what you're doing. Absolutely. I think that's really important. It's just like the blockchain. Right. You know, the blockchain is not anonymous. Right. Even if you run through a mixer. Right. Or two or three mixers. Mm -hmm. It gets harder and harder to trace it, but it's not anonymous. Right. It's all there. I guarantee the NSA has a copy of the blockchain. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, right. everybody, I mean, anybody that exactly. wants to. And that's right. why I'm sure the NSA right. does. Right? <laughs> so I can make that guarantee. <laughs> gotcha. so, so if you really want to engage in anonymous commerce, you know, absolutely have to have anonymous commerce, even though somebody with all the money of somebody like the NSA is trying to chase you down, mm -hmm. it's going to have to be a next generation system. I see. Now, I suspect these next generation systems are growing up right now. Right. They may already exist. Right. That's what the book is about. And I refer to that area as a badlands. Right. In which all communications, anonymous, every direction, by direction, you know, you and I can set up a transaction in which neither of us or any central party can ever find out what we talked about or that we even talked about each other. And I recommend to everybody... Uh, that they take the time 
to start hiding their footprint on the internet. Okay. And and in every way, it's not just the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, go out of your way to start using uh, cash rather than credit cards, as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, go out of the way to uh, not have your mail come to your house uh, by setting up a post office box or not a post office, but like a UPS box or someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, stop using Google okay. for everything. Stop using it for searches. Mm-hmm. There's a number of search engines on there that are just as effective as Google, but will hide what's going on. Okay. Um, Can you recommend one? I use um, Startup. I think it's the one I use. One of the links in the back is called uh, Prism Break, and that's an excellent source for going to to find all of the programs that you can look at okay. to do this. you know. But things like using Windows or Apple, for instance, is a major problem if you're concerned about privacy because you have no idea what's going on in that software. One of the first things you should do is start learning how to use something like Linux. Start learning Ubuntu is the easiest thing to start with. It's gotten very sophisticated now. Get yourself a little computer or something that's just low end and start playing with it and start learning how to do it. I think it's pretty user-friendly now from what I hear. It is. It's, it's gotten very, very user-friendly. Yes, it is a lot of work. Yes, it is a pain in the ass. Let me find another quote here. This is a uh, conversation in which the main character, mm-hmm. Juan, is talking with someone that's turned out to be her main mentor and educator in terms of getting around on the internet. Okay. And she's arguing about uh, cell phones because cell phones is one of those other areas that uh, you should go out of your way to leave your cell phone at home and trying to gain access to the internet by the badlands by using a cell phone. And her mentor is saying, that's a very bad idea. You need to do this, need to do this. And she says, but that's so much trouble. That's such a pain in the ass. Why do I have to go through all that trouble? And her mentor says to her, the road to hell isn't paved with good intentions. Only minor inconveniences were controlled not by their truncheons, but by our own laziness. Hmm. And that's really the case. If you make it hard for them to do this data mining of your information in the future, it means it's much less likely for them to be able to find some law you've broken. Mm-hmm. At least you've made it a little harder for them to do that. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Everybody knows till everybody knows your name Down the road it will be told about the death of old Mount Gox About traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee See, they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free Our Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain Everybody knows till everybody knows your name. From the ghettos of Calcutta to the 
halls of parliament While the bankers count our money out for every government Oh, Bitcoin flies on through the skies of virtuality A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to Everybody knows till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows Till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name Sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh Lord, before I have to go Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh Lord, before I Governments are the most dangerous creation man has ever made. More people have been killed by governments than by any other creation ever made by man. Mm -hmm. all right. Yes, there is a risk to all of us in a world in which governments are not actively involved. There's a risk of violence. There's a, a risk of theft. There's a risk of many bad things happening. Mm -hmm. But it's happening at a low level. And one of the purposes of Thieves Emporium is to talk. And in fact, I mentioned that the woman involved had serious moral issues coming from being a prostitute in the meat space, so to speak, mm -hmm. to moving into the New Badlands. And that's because she saw that in the New Badlands, you could go out and hire somebody to make a hit. Right. You could go out and buy all sorts of drugs. You could buy poisons that are so exotic that nobody can understand what they do half the time. Hmm. Um, you can buy counterfeit materials. You can buy your way into databases by buying uh, zero-time cracks to be able to break into databases and steal information. All of the bad things that everybody says you can find on the Internet, she could see them. They were there. On the other hand, there were also people fighting government tyranny, fighting to get free expression out, to put it in a, a current situation. Mm -hmm. You know, there were the Snowdens. Right. All right. Right. Out there trying to fight what is clearly an overwhelming growth of tyranny in the world. Right. The whistleblowers. That's right. And they now have a place to hide and be completely covered. And so there was good and there was bad in this. And the question is, which would you rather have? You know, right. the good and the bad. Or the tyranny, which is clearly going to become bad, the 1984. Right. Choose the good and the bad or just lay everything down and say, you know, we are just going to let the government right. completely control our lives exactly. in every single way. Exactly. Because we're scared to death that there may be some bad things. And in so doing, just like you said, exactly. somebody rises up to power exactly. that's worse than Adolf Hitler, enslaves people, and then starts slaughtering. And then exactly. you have genocide after genocide. Exactly. I think it's a no-brainer as far as which one to choose. Well, and that's the point about the fact that it was not an easy moral decision for her to decide to become a member of this underground society. Mm -hmm. Because it's not, you know, people say, oh, I don't believe in libertarian ideas because there's no such thing as a utopia. You're right. It's not a utopia. Mm -hmm. uh, if we lived in a world of Ozzy and Harriet, if we lived in the kind of world we grew up with, Father Knows Best, mm -hmm. where hierarchies were always goodness and light, 
then yes, we could choose hierarchies and be happy and everything would be fine. But we can't find perfect people to run those hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the chances are that we're beginning to realize that the people at the top are often the worst of the lot. Oh, yeah. All right. So having power concentrated at the top with these people is getting to be a very dangerous situation. Why is it that governments turn bad? Why is it that governments get so out of control to such an extent that they are going into sovereign nations and invading sovereign nations, bombing sovereign nations? You know, now we can do it, uh, you know, by remote control. Yeah. Right. We can yeah. bomb and kill people by remote control like we're playing a video game. Have you seen the movie Drones, by the way? It's a low budget movie. You probably wouldn't pick it up because the cover art has absolutely nothing to do with with what the movie is about. It basically takes place inside a drone trailer. Oh, wow. A drone command trailer with the two drone pilots or pilot and gunner or whatever their titles are. I right. Don't know, being the primary characters in it. Wow. And it turns out to really be a thoughtful worthwhile movie to take a look at. I, I do recommend it if you haven't seen it, uh, but it's one that will probably slip below the radar unless somebody mentions it to you. So, How is it that governments always end up becoming rotten and doing rotten things? Why because power corrupts, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Yep. And the more concentrated power comes in Washington, the longer that power stays in Washington, mm -hmm. the more capable governments are of seizing additional power. I truly believe that the issues that are going to face the next generation and this generation mm -hmm. are not the right or left kind of issues that we have worried about all through the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, They are not the issues of socialism versus right-wing activities. They are not issues of what should government do. Mm -hmm. They are issues of what limits should be placed on governments. Mm -hmm. If you think of it, there's really two axes in the political spectrum. And the newspapers and the media are very good at trying to hide this fact. But there are really two axes, not one. One is the conflict between the haves and the have-nots over where government resources should go. Right. Should they go to welfare? Should they go to building new industrial support facilities? Those are the haves versus the have-nots. Right. And we call those Democrats and Republicans. And we call those Democrats and Republicans. Right. 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 Uh, or right and left, for, for one of a right, better term, right. rather than call them Democrats or Republicans. But the issue that is growing and it's becoming very, very profound is the more or less issue. More or less. That's right. Should government even be doing these things? Mm -hmm. You know, how much government should we have in our society and right. how much authority should we force the government to concede back to the individual? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really going to become the dominant issue because government has become so large, so centralized, so powerful that it is now past a critical point and it's not going to back down. And yeah. so if individuals want to establish authority on their own again, want to take back the power that governments have taken from them, they're going to have to fight for it. Yeah, you know, it scares me that when people are scared, they, they will do anything that they're asked to do, you know, for instance, or told to do so. You had the um, Boston Marathon bombing, right? Yeah. I've done a lot of research or a fair amount of research on that. It looked like a false flag to me. I'm not even going to go into that. But anyway, so what happened there in Boston, in that area? right after that. Well, you had these SWAT team mm -hmm. vehicles that looked kind of like tanks. You can't blow these things up. And all the guys in their military looking gear going around and 
basically going house to house. Mm -hmm. You know, it looked to me like it was an experiment to see. And conducting illegal searches. Conducting illegal searches. It looked to me like they were saying, hey, we're going to go house to house and let's just see how it goes. Let's see if anybody gives us any flack. And, you know, we don't know if anybody gave any flack because we didn't, the media doesn't cover that. But basically going house to house. Hey, we're going to come in your house and we're going to search through all of your closets, you know, basement and attic and everything else. Even though you know that your house has been locked since it happened because you watched it on TV. Mm-hmm. Your house has been locked down. You're standing there with your gun. We right. still are going to come into your house. Is it okay if we come in? Sure, come on in. You know, sure. that's fine because we're scared. We're scared. You've gotten us so scared, Yeah. you know, or whoever perpetrated this crime has gotten us so scared that we are now willing to completely lay down all of our civil rights. Right. We're willing to just watch you stand there and torch the Constitution, and we're right. going to watch it right. burn and smell the smoke because you've gotten us so friggin' scared. So that's what scares me, you know, is that if you continue to get people scared, and they're always talking about terrorists here, terrorists here, terrorists here. And my answer is always, no, 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 no. The terrorists are in Washington, my friends. The terrorists <laughs> are not out in the plains of Kansas, right, or milling around the cornfields in Indiana. They're just not. And sure, there are bad actors anywhere. You can imagine a bad actor anywhere, right? Downtown Mm -hmm. Nashville, right now, there's somebody planning something horrible. You can imagine these things, but let's get real. Let's realize, people, that so much of what's going on is fear-mongering. But, you know, I tell this story all the time, and that is a couple that I knew lived in Europe for 10 years. They came back. This was a couple years ago. And they said what shocked us was how paranoid Americans have become just in the 10 years that we've been gone. And I noticed that people are so paranoid in how they talk to each other, how they communicate, and it scares me. And add to that, this whole movement of glued to your phone, giving your phone the old two thumbs, look at me, mom, giving my phone the old two thumb, you know, and driving around texting, you know, but mostly isolating themselves, isolating themselves with their little games that they play on the computer, isolating themselves with their little electronic devices. People, if you have children, anybody listening, if you have children, do not let them get on electronic devices, little games and little pads and little phones. Wait until they're in their teens. Don't let them have those things as two and three and four and five and six year olds. Let them be out doing fun things. Let them be doing crafts. Get the paste out. Get the popsicle sticks out and the glue and have them make something or build something out of Lego. But, you know, keep them away from this beginning training in how to isolate the self because that, if a person is isolated and then on top of that you add all of this fear, that person is going to be malleable. That person is going to be easily molded into whatever anybody wants them to be, whether it's a corporation or a government. So parents, beware. (laughs) Did you like, uh, hey, Max, what did you think about that last rant? That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. So about the book. Yes. We're almost out of time here. All right. The book is called Thieves Emporium. That's correct. The author is you, Max Hernandez. That's correct. And... What else do you want to tell us in some closing comments about the book? Or you could even tell our listeners how to uh, get in touch with you. Or you could give our listeners a word of advice. But take your time, as much time as you need to. Tell our listeners what you feel like they need to know or what you feel like you really want them to know about the book and about life generally. All right. The book is an attempt to bring issues to people that are looking for solutions to those issues. So it is written in a fictional format to make it easy to read, to make it engaging, 
but it is written around a framework that is really very, very real. Uh, if you look at some of the reviews, you'll see reviews from programmers, you'll see reviews from economists saying, yes, this is, all these facts that are discussed are absolutely true. And the end result is that I hope after the reader reads this book, he goes to the bibliography. Because the bibliography is full of additional sources. You were asking, where would I go for this? Mm -hmm. Where would I go for that? That's what the bibliography is. This book is meant to be a primer to get you started on thinking about these issues. And the bibliography is meant to give you the next step upwards. So I hope all of you will take the trouble to go to Amazon or Nook or Kobo or Smashwords or, or Apple. It's now on Apple. Mm -hmm. It was a very hard time getting Apple to put it up there. Oh, wow. But it is now is now on Apple, I believe. Mm. And take a look at the book. I've tried to keep it as cheap as I can. It's $2 for an electronic download. Wow. That and is cheap. Uh, if it looks at all good to you, download it. Take a look at it. Is that something they can download and then have online or read it on their Kindle? Or no, it's work? Kindle. It's a Kindle. It's Kindle. Okay. It's a Kindle device. Or, you know, one of the others are EPUB related that have uh, locks on them. Take a look because we are really approaching a crisis point in this country. And what's going to happen is that when we hit that crisis, the government and the hierarchies that support it are going to tell us that we need more of the same. They're going to say, look, our only solution is we didn't do enough. There's bad people out there. We need to be very scared. And we, the government, are the only ones that can help you. And you're going to have to do more of the same. You're going to have to use this new currency that we want to issue you. You're going to have to accept that the economy is dead and you now are going to have to work directly for the government or take government welfare or survive in some other fashion. And I want you to understand that there are alternatives, and that's really what this book is about. And now is the time to begin to educate yourself and your friends about what those alternatives are. Good stuff, man. All right. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Max Hernandez, author of Thieves Emporium, that can easily be found by going to Amazon or Libris or any of the other booksellers online. Max, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Best of luck to you with the book, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bitcoins and Gravy is made possible by the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance, the first state-focused nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting blockchain technologies for a free and equitable society. To learn more about the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance, visit TennesseeBitcoin.org. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word, and today's magic word is freedom. I would like to thank my guest on today's show, Max Hernandez, author of the best-selling novel Thieves Emporium by Badlands Publishing. Look for Thieves Emporium on Amazon.com or any place online where quality ebooks and paper books are sold. Find out more about my guests and sponsors, check out the show notes on the Let's Talk Bitcoin page or SoundCloud or on bitcoinsandgravy.com slash episode 34. Thanks for tuning into the show. And if you really do like the show and you aren't just faking it, please tell your friends about it or send them a link to the show. And remember the Bitcoins and Gravy hotline. Have you ever wanted to be a podcaster? Then call Bitcoins and Gravy at 615-208-5198 and leave a message with your comments, questions, or complaints. So give me a call at 615-208-5198.
And of course, I offer a number of ways for you to download all of the past podcasts. You can go to letstalkbitcoin.com or directly from SoundCloud, or you can go to the website, which of course is bitcoinsandgravy.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a minute to leave a review on SoundCloud. And remember, it's your reviews and comments that help new listeners discover Bitcoins and Gravy. Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, with my trusty companion, Maxwell. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other out there now you hear, and remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Thanks for listening to Bitcoins and Gravy from East Nashville, Tennessee. And a word of wisdom I received from a very good friend of mine by way of email today, a quote by William Arthur Ward. The pessimist complains about the wind, the optimist expects it to change, and the realist adjusts the sails. Happy sailing, folks.